The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. Negotiate Anything is produced by the American Negotiation Institute. And with over 3 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made it the number one negotiation podcast in the world. I'm Kwame Christian, and I'm the director of the American Negotiation Institute. We're growing, and I want to introduce you to our new team members and new trainers. This will give you new and diverse perspectives on negotiation and conflict resolution. And that's why Shane Martin, our head of sales and partnerships, is going to serve as co-host of the show from time to time. We're excited to continue to provide you with the best content that will help to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, our team conducts negotiation and conflict resolution trainings in the United States and abroad. Our trainings will give you the practical skills you need to resolve conflict, negotiate, lead, and persuade with confidence. Click the link in the description below to learn more about how we can make your difficult conversations easier. Amanda, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Kwame. Good to be here. Yes, it is great to have you. You came highly recommended, so I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. I've been a journalist for 20 years, and I write books. I spent most of my career writing for Time Magazine in different places. Um, and somewhere along the line, I'd say about five years ago, I started to just feel like journalism wasn't working the way it was supposed to work. And that was deeply disturbing <laughs> because I'd kind of, you know, gone long on journalism in my life. It was part of my identity. It still is. It felt like journalism was really important, but it wasn't having the effect that journalists wanted to have. And so by that, I mean, uh, people distrusted the places that I was writing for about half the country actively distrusted the the places i was i was writing for and believe they were not telling the truth on purpose um no amount of facts and argumentation seemed to change people's minds when it came to politics in particular and it just felt like curiosity was dead and that's like my whole thing that's all i got <laughs> you know what i'm saying so i went through this whole kind of midlife crisis about what a, you know how to be useful in this hyperpolarized time and uh, ended up totally transforming how I think about conflict by studying and learning from people who work in conflict differently than journalists. So this would be people like you, people who work in negotiation, people who work as psychologists, uh, people who do gang violence interruption, who um, work uh, as, as diplomats or rabbis or all kinds of people who understand conflict intimately, but very differently from, from journalists. Uh, so that's sort of my, that's, that's where we are 
right now. <laughs> That's how I got here. This is great. And so what we're going to do, audience, is we're going to have an, an open conversation. Um, speaking of curiosity, I'll just mobilize mine. <laughs> and uh, we're going to dig deeply into your, your experience and your perspective here and kind of break the typical flow of a, a standard episode. And so I think what would be interesting to do is explore that transformation that you had. So you said that you started to see conflict differently. Can you describe how you saw it before versus how you mm. see it now? Yeah, so forever since I was a baby journalist working for David Carr, who was my editor at Washington City Paper, I was a brilliant editor, a very generous, larger-than-life person. He and every editor told me, you need conflict in every story. It was like just taken as a matter of fact. You need conflict, you need characters, right? That's what makes a good story is that tension. Um, so I and I so I think, you know, I always figured I I was very comfortable with conflict that that's like my bread and butter, right? Is conflict. I covered crime, I covered uh I covered education, <laughs> which actually had a lot of conflict. Um I covered terrorism and disasters for many years. But then one day I was interviewing a woman who used to be a journalist covering politics on Capitol Hill and then became a conflict mediator. So totally changed her career. So she went from, you know, the belly of the beast covering Congress to trying to help people through conflict. So I asked her, what would you, let's say you were forced to go back to journalism, what would you do differently? And she said the most surprising thing. She said, I would go deeper into conflict. And I said, what? Because people are always, it seems like, you know, the public is always mad at journalists for doing too much conflict, right? So here she was telling me, no, 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 we're not doing enough. And she said the thing that she'd learned is that journalists often hover around conflict, right? And they sometimes inflame conflict, intentionally or not but they don't kind of go into it or get underneath it and try to really ask different questions and understand like what's really going on. Often it's like they're watching a tennis match, right? He said this and she said this and back and forth and back and forth. And then can you believe it? He said this and no, you're never really kind of getting to, um, you know, what, what you and your colleagues might call the interests, right? Um, you're just at the sort of position level. Do I have that right? Am I using the right? Absolutely. Um, so the things that, negotiation researchers have known for a long time, I'm not sure journalists always know. So journalists know a lot about fear and storytelling and emotion and those kinds of conflict emotions, but not a lot about how to get underneath the conflict and figure out what's really going on um, and about the psychology of human behavior in conflict. Typically, I mean, there are you know exceptions, obviously, but in general, that's fascinating. And so it, it sounds like now in your journey, digging into conflict, what you're doing is you're exploring it on a, a deeper level. So you're getting a, a better understanding of let's actually use the journal, the, the journalistic terms that you would describe, like the characters mm -hmm. in this play. But you're getting into their roles. <laughs> you're finding out what those motives are and why they do what they do. Am I understanding that right? Yeah. Yeah. And it even goes down to the technique. So in all the years I spent writing for national outlets, nobody ever coached me on interviewing. Nobody ever listened to me interview anyone. Nobody ever gave me feedback about <laughs> interviewing anyone. Uh, you know, I got a lot of feedback on my stories, right? On my, my 
drafts of stories, but not on the process. So along the way, and I, when I was going through this whole existential crisis, uh, I got some mediation training, right? And early on, of course, there was training in active listening techniques. And my immediate thought was, well, I know how to, you know, I know how to listen. I mean, this is what I do, right? I interview people. It's been, you know, it's actually the most ridiculous privilege of my life is that I get to parachute into people's lives and ask them, you know, pretty deep questions. So I went into it kind of cocky about, about my ability to, to listen. And what I learned pretty quickly is that, you know, nodding my head and furrowing my brow and, you know, doing those things isn't really listening. Like, the best kind of listening, as you know, is, is proving to the other person that you're really trying to get them, even, even as you disagree, maybe especially as you disagree, right? And so you have to literally prove it by, by distilling what they've said into the most elegant language you can muster, playing it back to them and checking if you get it right, which was very different from how a typical interview would go, right? Um, so that that probably is the thing that's changed my day-to-day -day life the most professionally and personally. Like every interview I do, I tend to 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 loop people. I call it looping because I trained with Gary Friedman, who's a mediator who teaches looping for understanding. But it's just another form of active listening, right? Absolutely. And I, I like this because one of the things that I talk about a lot in the trainings is the fact that it's not enough to listen. You need to prove that you're listening. It's like you're playing a game where the other side is also the referee, right? They get to determine whether or not you scored <laughs> in yes. terms of, of listening. And so when I, I always ask them, just invite them to correct me. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying X, Y, Z. Is that right? Good. And I'll, I'll keep on doing that until I get my point. And so what ends up happening is for the other side, you're, it sounds like you're a generous listener and it seems as though you're, you're really interested in learning more. And that, in fact, encourages them to share more, too, because we we often talk about active listening as a skill. Right. I think that's important, too. But we don't recognize just how important it is as an an, an encourager because it changes the way that people share when you change the way that you listen. Totally, totally. Amen to that. I mean, I think I actually wish there was a different word. Like the word listening feels a little too small for what it actually is. So I don't know if you come up with a good, a better word. <laughs> I haven't, but Joe Navarro did. <laughs> and so in his episode, everybody check that out. Uh, I think Maria, our head of content and marketing, came up with a cool title. So I don't know what it is. It's Skills Booster, something like that. But with Joe Navarro, and he said, active listening is garbage. Don't throw, <laughs> throw active listening out the window. I was like, Joe, no. <laughs> what happened? And he said, this is, this is what it is for me. He said, it's benign curiosity. Huh. Interesting. Curiosity. And so it's like if you go to a different country, somebody you you want to hear about somebody's trip. Oh, what do you do? Oh, that's really interesting. Tell me more about that. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> and so you ate that food. How, how did it taste? I've never heard of it. Oh, that's really. So it's almost like childlike curiosity where I, I just want to absorb information and it strips the judgment that often um, associate that's often associated with our tone when we disagree. And, I, and it goes back to what you said. Um, I'm, I genuinely want to understand you, regardless of whether or not I agree. Does your company invest in professional development training? 
If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the show. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Right. It's like um, like an anthropologist might interview you as opposed to, you know, your mother. <laughs> <laughs> like they just genuinely, they're no judgment, you know. Um, yeah. No, it's so true. And I mean, I think to your point that the piece of it that I didn't know at least, and I've now trained, you know, hundreds of journalists on this and, and, um, and there's also a learning curve typically for them is, is what happens afterward. So in order to listen, people need to be heard. So it becomes this game of chicken, right? Like who's going to listen first. (laughs) And if you, as the journalist prove you're really trying to get this person, not agreeing, but trying to get them, and they see that, it changes everything that happens next. So Guy Itchikoff has got, done some really good research on this where they've, they've found that once people feel heard, they say less extreme, more nuanced things. So think about the implication for journalism, right? Like if I'm interviewing someone and they don't feel heard, which is most of the time for most people all you know in life, <laughs> then... They're going to keep saying more, more and more extreme things. But if they do feel heard, they're going to reveal a little bit more ambivalence. They're going to be a little bit more open to other information, even information they maybe don't want to hear. So it is like the skeleton key to, to conflict, right, it is this, whether we call it benign curiosity or you know, I think Chris Voss calls it tactical listening. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so whatever that is, proving someone to someone that you are really trying to understand them is is just a magical power. I mean, it really is. Absolutely. And it's so funny that people often think so tactically about these conversations about how to persuade somebody and they're trying to do these different psychological approaches and um, those have their place for sure um, 
<laughs> but the reality is that in the vast majority of these conversations, if you just approach it with some curiosity, ask great questions and listen effectively, people have a miraculous ability to change their own minds without you having to do very much. Yes, yes. And they're the most persuasive person, right? As you've said on this show, like I think nobody is going to persuade you as well as yourself. Um, so especially in conflict, right? When people are dug in, when there's emotion involved. Um, so that is the trick though, is like, how, how do you sustain curiosity in yourself? Right. Even when everything in you wants to believe you, you know what they're going to say next and you know who they are and it's not good. Like, I don't know. How do you do that yourself? So for me, I, again, I, I have to, I have to think very strategically about who I am and it's going to be different for different people. And I I've mentioned it on the podcast for a while. It's for people who have listened for a while. They're probably going to find this really fascinating because I had the first guest on who talked about strengths in like 2018, 2017. And I said, you know what? I need to take a strengths finder test. Had another guest on two years later. You know what? I need to take a strengths finder test. Well, I finally took it. Okay. And so here were the results. Um, when I showed it to my friends, they were shocked. <laughs> and so number one for me was competitiveness. I am very competitive. So that wasn't surprising for me. Seven out of the top 10 were strategy. So very strategic, not surprising. I've played 16,000 games on chess.com. That's how I unwind. And so I, I, that wasn't surprising. Now, what was surprising is that we got the full report, 34 strengths, saw one through 34. Number 34 was empathy. Empathy was dead last. And so for people who have listened to the show and hear the way that I approach conversations, that would probably be shocking because I talk about it all the time, but it helped me to recognize empathy as a skill. And it helped me to understand why I'm able to listen and empathize well is because I'm competitive and I recognize it's the best strategy to be effective. And I listen competitively because I turn it into a game for myself. So I say, I have no clue where this person is coming from at all, but I bet I can ask questions that are so good and listen so well <laughs> that I can figure it out. And so I'll stay in that mode for like 30, 40 minutes, just focusing completely on them. Cause I know I'm like, Kwame, you listen, you practice this skill a lot. I know you can figure this out. Mm -hmm. And so the, it's a, it turns huh. into a conversation that's very generous and completely focused on them. Um, and for me, it's, it's a game that I play to focus on them because I know I have a tendency to get competitive in a way that could be detrimental. So I take that competitive nature and turn it into something more benevolent, more charitable and more generous in terms of listening. Oh, wow. So maybe we have a better phrase here. It, it's, it's competitive listening. Yeah. <laughs> For me, like you're trying to show maybe yourself, I guess, and the person that you can do this. You can investigate the sort of like a detective as opposed to, um, as opposed to like a, a judge and jury. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a fair way of conceptualizing it because in, in my first book, I have a section called uh, the benefit of the benefit of the doubt. And so the way I go into these conversations is I genuinely believe that this person is doing the very, 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 very best they can given their perspective, their understanding and their skill set. 
Now, depending on who they are, that might not be very good in this moment. And so it helps mm -hmm. me to be more productive during the conversation. And so for me, I say, I bet this person didn't get up and say, I'm planning on being evil today. I bet mm -hmm. in their head, there's some rationalization that makes sense. And I need to figure it out right now. I don't know. How does this behavior make sense? And then thinking back to my buddy, Dan Oblinger, who was on the show a while back talking about how to deal with deception, even if people are lying to you, hmm. he says lying is an opportunity because for some reason, this person thought that lying to me was their best option. I need to figure out why that is. That's fascinating, hmm. right? Hmm. And so I think about it in terms of like a story too. Some stories are, are nonfiction and some stories are fiction. I find both endlessly entertaining. <laughs> and so um, when I depersonalize it and try my hardest to understand, um, regardless of how I'm feeling, it helps me to be more effective in the conversation. That's interesting. And I think it's a, it's a special challenge for reporters, right? Because it, let's say you're interviewing a politician, right? You, you kind of go into it with the opposite exact opposite mindset <laughs> like it's like <laughs> this person is lying to me on purpose everything they say is suspect they are not they don't have the public's interest at heart and i'm not saying this is the right way to go into it by the way but uh that is the <laughs> that is often the in, in a sort of adversarial us versus them culture like politics or the legal system or other things it's the opposite isn't it it's the opposite assumption and and it's sort of designed to give you what you expect. On the other hand, right, there are like, you know, when I interview politicians, they are not, they are not, I mean, they have an obvious reason not to tell me the unvarnished truth, right? Exactly. Like, so, uh, but there's a reason to your point, and, and that's always worth considering. Like, what is it, what is it they're trying to convey and why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think really it's going to be different for different people because there are going to be some people who are very low in competitiveness and they will hear what I said and they would say that is repulsive. Kwame, <laughs> why do you think you think in that way? That's very strange. Right. And I think what it is, is understanding who you are and what works for you, understanding your unique triggers as well, because right. if you get triggered and emotional, then you're it's going to affect the way that you listen. And when, it, when your ability to listen effectively is impacted, then it affects your ability to encourage them to share information. And when it mm -hmm. comes down to it, negotiation is an information game. And so I know I cannot be effective without appropriate information. And so there's, only, there's some information that I can only get from them. So hmm. it helps me to, to see a lot more value in the, in the way that they're approaching it. Yeah, it's, um, it's tricky because... It, it is like I, I, I appreciated this. I think you said this in the past in a, on a podcast that what we're asking people to do is not normal. Like it's not normal to hear something that you find offensive or threatening and get curious about it. Exactly. <laughs> and I think it's good to just it, it was helpful to me to just have that acknowledged and acknowledge that you actually can practice it enough that it becomes more automatic. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think you're you're a great example of that, too, because you you have an entire career of listening differently than you do now. And you yeah. were able to make that transition. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to practice it. I mean, it's not to your point. It's not natural evolutionarily or otherwise to to get curious in a situation where you feel triggered. Um 
so I think, you know, practicing it. Actually, I actually find when I t tell people about, you know, looping or active listening and, and trained journalists, I'm like, you know, practice it with your kids. If you have little kids, it's a great way to practice it because they're always coming at you with some complaint or emotion, right? Like that's what they do. Mm -hmm. And if you can distill it for them and play it back and check if you got it right, you find like half the time that's all they wanted. You know, that's yep. actually all they wanted. And that's then they'll it. go do the thing that you, <laughs> as opposed to arguing with them or ignoring them or ordering them or, you know, so, sometimes it's actually much easier to, to just make them feel heard. Absolutely. And so active listening is a critical part of parenting. And like you said, sometimes it is the whole battle, not even yeah. half the battle. It's the whole battle. And a lot of times what ends up happening is our, our, our goal to just shut things down and make and save time is actually the thing that makes us take more time in these yes. conversations. Yeah. We're like, I don't have time to like make you feel heard, but it turns out it, it's like much faster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Journalists Absolutely. often say this to me, they're like, yeah, this is all good, but I don't have time for that. Like I'm on deadline. And, and what we work on is, you know, sometimes, yes, sometimes being curious does take more time, but the, the listening thing we're talking about does not necessarily take more time and it can save you a lot of heart heartache. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and to that point with kids too, because, um, I know that a lot of times, you know, I'm at work during the day, during my peak hours of energy, but it's like in the morning when I'm rushing to get to work. And then in the evening when I'm exhausted from work, that's when we spend the most time. <laughs> yeah. and, and so we're under <laughs> duress and I'm like, I just want to leave. Yes. I just want you to go to sleep so I can relax, you know, and, yeah. oh, <laughs> and yes. so we're, we're frazzled and we're under higher levels of duress. So you're Absolutely right. These these are opportunities for us to practice our listening, because for me, in my experience, listening at work as a mediator, as a lawyer, as a negotiation consultant, whatever it happens to be, it is so much easier. But the more personal the relationship becomes, the more difficult it is to execute. Yeah, I'm the absolute worst at the most important arguments I have, which are with my husband. Right. Mm -hmm. I actually find the kid thing a little easier, depending on the depending on the situation but uh because they're just they're kids i mean they're irrational like you can't you don't expect them to be like you know adults mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have a lot more power i mean honestly right in that situation <laughs> so uh so yeah yeah that's something i i you know am constantly working on and but again you have the more you practice it in those easier you know conflicts the easier it gets in the harder ones right Absolutely. And and one of the things that I thought was interesting about you is that you have you draw the distinction between some conflicts that are productive, like good conflict, and then some bad conflict. Can you tell us about that distinction? Yeah, so I kind of went into writing this book, High Conflict, trying to figure out, you know, what does it look like to for societies to get out of conflict. You know, can I find stories and, and research about that? And I realized pretty quickly, that, right, that that was the wrong question. Conflict is not the problem. You know, we need conflict. We need the kind of thing that pushes us to be better as individuals, as groups, as countries. We need to stand up for ourselves. We need to ask questions. Uh, so, so I think of it as good conflict, like, you know, the late Congressman John Lewis used to talk about good trouble, right? Mm -hmm. The kind of conflict that is necessary like good trouble is the kind where you, you know, can get angry 
and it can be stressful and it can be hard and unpleasant and questions get asked and you can actually see this in the in the data that in good conflict arguments more questions get asked and there's more satisfaction afterward and even if no one changes their mind there's more movement in the emotion so in 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 good conflict, you experience anger, frustration, impatience, annoyance, fear, sadness, but then like glimpses of humor, understanding, surprise, and then back to anger, frustration. So it's like a galaxy of emotion as opposed to just one or two where you're really stuck, right? And I think that movement, that sense that you're going somewhere is the distinguishing feature, right, of good conflict, whereas high conflict, which is typically more unusual, but now seems to be everywhere, is the kind is the kind where it can really start small, but it becomes an all-consuming kind of conflict where it's conflict for conflict's sake, right? Mm-hmm. So it becomes almost like a perpetual motion machine where uh, the original dispute fades into the background and that us versus them dynamic takes over. Um, no questions get asked because, again, we think we know. We think we know what the other side is up to. Um, and there's a sense that you're not making any progress. So one of the one of the ways to tell if you're in high conflict, in my experience, is if you have the same arguments with the other side or person in your head over and over, and they don't go anywhere, you know? And then even when you talk to someone who agrees with you, <laughs> who's on your side, <laughs> you don't feel better right? Like you just, you're kind of stuck in, in this, in the, in the murk of the high conflict. And it becomes the kind of thing that gradually starts to um, make everyone involved suffer to different degrees, right? Mm-hmm. To different degrees, but it takes a real toll and you don't get the progress you get with good conflict. So that was for me, a really helpful distinction It's not, it's not conflict. That's the problem, as you know, it's the kind of conflict that brings out our worst instincts, um, particularly mm-hmm. in really emotional collective conflict. This is interesting. And so, Amanda, from your perspective, the distinction between high conflict and good conflict, would you say it's more in the process or the outcome? I would say it's much more about the process. Yeah. It's much more about, it's less about what the argument's about. Mm-hmm. And because I've seen, I've seen good conflict be about really hard things. And I've seen high conflict be about really silly things. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's much more about the how. Do you, are you able to retain dignity is a word that comes to mind. Your own and the other person's. That doesn't mean you don't criticize them. It doesn't mean you don't agree. You know, you have to agree. And and this is a distinction that I think it's frustrating to me how how often we get trapped in thinking that we either have to have high conflict, let's say in politics, like we've got now, mm-hmm. or bipartisan unity. You know, like I don't think those are the only two choices. <laughs> uh, and and you can see that, right? Like we're we're trapped in that kind of false dichotomy. Um, whereas in good conflict, you know, I've seen, I've, I've, you know, as a reporter been able to sit in on conversations between, uh, you know, 
people talking, having really deep, difficult conversations about, you know, the Confederate flag or who really disagree deeply, right? Um, but do it in such a way that doesn't collapse into dehumanizing each other, you know? That keeps open the possibility, however remote, that they don't know everything. This is really interesting because I think so many people are focused on the destination that they don't think about the journey. And what it sounds like is that, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, the destination could be the same place. So for example, in good conflict, you could ultimately walk in a circle where you you address the issue in different ways. You share, you're asking questions, you learn from them, they learn from you. There's a variety of different emotions and then ultimately you settle in more or less the same place, but it could be good conflict. Then you could have the same situation, but it's bad conflict and everybody is approaching it in a only experiencing a narrow set of emotions, which would be anger, hostility, disgust, like that narrow set of negative emotions toward each other. There's no curiosity. There's more just attacking. And then they end up in more or less the same place. And one could be good conflict and one could be bad conflict, even though in terms of the practical outcome, it looks from the outside looking in that they ended up in the same place. Yeah. And I think you, you, you might be in the same place, but you've got your peripheral vision. Like, so in, in good conflict, you can see things that you miss in high conflict, right? Like, just as a quick example, right now, Democrats think re that there are twice as many Republicans who have extreme views on various things than actually do, and vice versa. Republicans think there are twice as many Democrats who have extreme views. Also, both sides dramatically overestimate how much the other side hates them right? Wow. Yeah. So you see how that changes your behavior, right? I mean, you'd vote for anyone to avoid having someone in office who hates you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so those are mistakes that you make in high conflict all over the world. I mean, it's just a very human, you, you lose your ability to see things clearly. And that's true always, right? We all have biases and, you know, blind spots, but it gets worse when you're in that constant state of feeling threatened and also feeling morally superior it seems as though in good conflict it should be a transformative experience for everybody involved even if you end up in more or less the same place like nothing changes it something could change in good conflict for sure but even in a situation where um we more or less stay in the same place i could leave the conflict different than i started because i say you know what because i ask questions and learn from you my perspective has changed in a way that helps me to see the situation more holistically and so i'm yes I, it's not a situation where i now agree with you but i can understand where you're coming from and i'm better for it exactly yeah and i think it makes you more effective in your quest right because you understand the dialect the moral dialect the other person is speaking better right so when when an opportunity arises maybe it's a year from now maybe it's five years from now when an opportunity arises you can see oh this actually might work because it actually speaks to the other side's moral values which i don't agree with <laughs> and mine right? Mm -hmm. So you're able to see opportunities 
that otherwise get lost. Because, you know, the thing about high conflict is you end up fighting about a lot of stuff, only some of which matters, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so you waste a lot of energy. You you fight a lot internally. Like any, in my experience, and, I, you know, I'm sure there are exceptions, any institution or organization that gets goes really deep on us versus them thinking and where there's an orthodoxy and a good versus evil, eventually you start to turn on each other. So there's this real danger in every, you know, I ended up following a bunch of people who had shifted from high conflict to good conflict. And in every single case, so a, a politician in California, a former gang member in Chicago, an activist in England, in every case, in high conflict, they start mimicking the behavior of their adversaries without realizing it. So they do the thing, <laughs> you know, that they went into the fight to stop. So the, the politician went into politics to make it less toxic and more inclusive. And in a matter of months, he was making it more toxic and less inclusive because he was sucked into the magnetism of high conflict. So that's the real diabolical danger uh, of high conflict is that you start to do, to harm the thing you care most about, usually without realizing it. And so how does somebody who recognizes they're in the middle of high conflict, how do they change it and turn that into good conflict? Well, there's a few things that um, the people I followed all did. So they were in really different kinds of conflicts all over the world, personal, political, professional. But the patterns that I saw, um, which may, may be useful, are, are that they, first of all, they always did something to distance themselves from the conflict entrepreneurs in their midst, right? So these are the people or platforms that exploit conflict for their own ends, mm -hmm. often for profit, but sometimes even more often for attention or a sense of belonging or camaraderie, right? Recognizing who those people are and creating some distance. So, you know, to take an extreme example, the gang leader in Chicago moved across town and and he was able to do that, and it made a huge difference because it slowed down the conflict, right? So when his cousin was just tragically killed, he didn't know right away who did it. <laughs> he didn't have people coming to him right away agitating for revenge, right? So you slow down the conflict. For other people in less you know high-stakes conflict, it might mean changing who your lawyer is in an ugly divorce dispute or changing who's on your social media feed or which cable news pundit you're watching, right? Noticing who is really delighting in every twist and turn the conflict makes. And by the way, all of us can be that person. We all can act, especially journalists, right, as conflict entrepreneurs. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's useful to just, like, demonize them, right? <laughs> but it's important to notice that that pattern um and and get curious also about why why they're doing that you know um mm -hmm. what is going on there it's so interesting to use a, a culinary example tell me if this makes any sense um if not we can just edit it out and i'll sound perfect anyway <laughs> um <laughs> so it's almost like a marinade imagine huh. you are the dish being cooked and then 
if you are marinating in in some very spicy <laughs> spicy sauce you're going to be spicy too and mm-hmm. um once you remove yourself from that then the the spiciness from the people around you stops seeping into you and then you can see things more objectively and you don't feel the need to respond in kind yeah it's like um a social contagion right exactly aka marinate yeah i mean there are especially in powerful group identities right like you we know from the research that when someone you care about gets an electric shock you feel it like you got it like the part of your brain that processes pain experiences that and the same is true with social pain like humiliation right so it doesn't even have to happen to you for you to feel social pain and react accordingly. So the more you can kind of distance yourself from people who, for example, conflict entrepreneurs will often frame everything as a humiliation mm-hmm. because it tends to really foment and escalate conflict um, for a lot of reasons. But that's something to look out for. You know, is it, is it really humiliating? Um, <laughs> or does this guy just keep saying it is? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's that's really that's a really 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 good point. And sometimes it it becomes difficult to see where they end and you begin because everybody starts to become, like you said, that social contagion. We start to become one nebulous blob of of like minded people. And yeah. I mean, it's the hive mind. That's what happens. Um, and uh, I, I think, especially when we think about today, how easy it is for things to get polarized, how divisive things have become, I think it's really important to stop and ask ourselves whether or not this is good conflict or whether or not it's high conflict. It's a distinction that I don't, I, I think this is the first time I've heard it described in this way. And it's been really, really, really helpful for me. And then with the time that we have left, um, I would ask, when it comes to on let's say on the on the like the globe scale or the na- global scale or the national scale because i think you already did a really good job of describing what it is that we can do to remove ourselves from high conflict and start to change that i think that's really helpful changing our environment now when it comes to the global scale or the national scale what are the things that we can do to address that i think a lot of the things that you talk about all the time apply here for good conflict like you cultivate good conflict with curiosity with asking different questions with making sure you're really listening to people right um with not assuming you know everything about them but then i think what you're asking is how do you take that to scale like how do you deal with that across a country or a political system is that what you're asking Mm -hmm. yeah um so some of the things that I think have been helpful from studying other conflicts elsewhere that might be useful here are, first of all, you have to reduce the power of these binary choices. We know from decades of research that when you divide humans into like two opposing groups, bad things happen. Like it just doesn't go well. (laughs) So we know from the research that countries that have more than two political parties tend to have more trust and less polarization. Not always. There are exceptions, right? But on average, that is one way. And that feels impossible, right? Like, oh my God, we'll never have a third party in the United States, right? At the same time, there are incremental changes you can make. So like, have you ever heard of ranked choice voting? No. Yeah, it's like this idea where you vote for your top three or four candidates for mayor, say. Um, So if your top choice doesn't get enough votes, your votes all go to the second choice you chose. 
And this actually is now being used in Alaska and Maine and New York City's mayoral election in June used ranked choice voting. So there are places actually doing this, even in the U.S., and one of the things it does, while it doesn't necessarily introduce a third party, it does complicate that binary, right? That sense you either win everything in an election or you lose everything. That winner-take-all mentality, which I think, right, from negotiation we know is like BS, <laughs> Then <laughs> that idea that if I win, you lose and vice versa. Um, that's what it does. Is it sort of, and it has this really intriguing effect on the candidates, right? Because if they're <laughs> worried about being your second or third choice, it, they're not as incentivized to, um, to castigate their opponents, right? Because, you know, if you're a supporter <laughs> of their opponent, he, they don't want to insult you because you, you know, they want you to pick them as your number two or three choice. So it, it, it complicates those kind of arbitrary, oversimplified stereotypes we make of the other. I think that's a great point. And I think this is the beginning of an incredible campaign, Amanda Ripley for president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's not happening. But I did I do remember <laughs> listening to one of your podcasts where you talked about how you originally thought about going into politics. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I remember thinking, God, I wish I wish he could I wish he'd done that. <laughs> I know. I Selfishly. Know. It, it, there are a lot of people who want other people to be. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. So uh, between us two, we have two people not going into politics, but we'll, you know, we'll have the candidate <laughs> candidates on if they want to come on. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.